0: Today we'll be looking at Titus and Philemon. First, let's get an introduction to Titus the man. Everything we know about Titus we learn from Paul's letters. He's not mentioned by Luke in the book of Acts at all. Chronologically speaking, we first see Titus as he accompanies Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, an event Paul references in Galatians chapter 2, verses 1-3. That was the occasion of the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, Even though Paul was under attack from the Judaizers who felt that all Gentile converts should be circumcised, Titus, who was a Gentile, declined to do so with the support of Paul himself. Later, Titus gets a lot of mention in 2 Corinthians. We learn from that letter that Paul had sent Titus to Corinth for the purpose of getting the contributions of the church there on behalf of the poor saints at Jerusalem. In addition, Paul had asked him to minister to them and bring back a report on their spiritual health. We then have this letter to Titus from Paul, where Titus is engaged in the organization of a church in Crete, the place where Paul had left him for this purpose in Titus five, We see that. Finally, during Paul's second imprisonment at Rome, Titus left him to visit Dalmatia. That's found in 2 Timothy 4.10. Probably it was to minister to the believers there. Now we'll begin reading with Titus chapter 1. Verse 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began, but hath in due times manifested his word through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Savior, to Titus, mine own son after the common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. This letter was written to Titus about the same time Paul wrote to Timothy probably 66-67 AD. Paul is giving instructions to Titus regarding his pastoral issues. In Paul's very first sentence he includes a doctrinal point unique to this letter and here it is, Paul a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ according to the faith of God's elect And here it is, the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness. The Greek word translated godliness there is eusebia. It speaks of lifestyle. It would appear that Paul intends to link a knowledge of the truth of God's word with a believer's action that reflects godliness. In other words, our trust in Jesus Christ should begin a godly lifestyle. There is an issue made very clear in verse 2 regarding the promise of eternal life when he states this, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. When you read Genesis through Deuteronomy, you scarcely find specifics on the issue of eternal life. It's obviously assumed, but not specifically stated. Paul is clear here that eternal life was promised before the world began. There is no question that the righteous of the Old Testament were looking forward to eternity with God. In verse 3, Paul says, and that's what we're preaching about. Well, in so many words, he says that. Paul makes an interesting use of the Greek word koinos in verse 4. That's the word for common, also used to describe the unclean state of Gentiles by the Jews. Paul seems to be making the point here in verse 4 that both Jews and Gentiles are saved through a common faith. Jesus Christ has made all Jews and Gentiles one through faith we find beginning in verse 5 the qualification for elders reading verse 5 for this cause left i thee in crete that thou should have set in order the things that are wanting and ordain elders in every city as i appointed thee if any be blameless the husband of one wife having faithful children not accused of riot or unruly. for a bishop must be blameless as the steward of god not self-willed not soon angry not given to wine no striker not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. Paul used the term elders in verse five, bishops in verse seven, and pastors and shepherds to describe the exact same office. Paul included a list of these qualifications for the office and 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-7 through seven as well. We see from verse 5 here that Paul remarks are specifically directed toward a situation of false teaching on the island of Crete. This island is about 600 miles northwest across the Mediterranean Sea toward Rome. These elders' bishops to be appointed in every city by Titus were for the purpose of combating this false teaching which apparently was akin to the false teaching of the Gnostics. These Gnostic teachers were perverters of established Christian doctrine, and they did so by mixing a little truth with a little bit of Oriental mysticism and Judaism. Paul puts forth an interesting point in verse 12, when he quotes what one of these false prophets had said about his own people. In other words, you can't trust what they say. I've written an article entitled, elders, bishops, pastors that's on BibleTrack.org, you can find it in the center column of the main page, and it, uh, in that article, compares the qualifications of 1 Timothy chapter 3 and uh, Titus chapter 1 here with regard to the qualifications for elders, bishops, pastors. So refer to that to get a thorough description of exactly what all of these criteria mean with regard to the qualifications for that office. In verse 10, Paul begins to talk about false teachers. Verse 10, For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said the Christians are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. This witness is true. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. Unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient, and to every good work reprobate." We should observe in this passage that Paul had no tolerance for extending an ecumenical olive branch to those who preach false doctrine. His contention throughout his ministry was that the gospel message of salvation by grace must not be compromised. I'm reminded of David's words in Psalm 119.63 when he said, I am a companion of all of them that fear thee, and of them that keep thy precepts. This provides a sound biblical test of faith, one that Paul obviously observed himself. We see a similar warning in Paul's letter to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3-8. through 8. Notice that Paul points out that they of the circumcision were particularly bothersome to the preaching of sound doctrine. That term refers to the Judaizers. They were teachers who taught the necessity of adding Mosaic law into keeping one's Christian faith. Nope. No friendly relations with these guys, according to verse 11, when it says, whose mouths must be stopped. Verse 12 is rather amusing as Paul addresses the Judaizers on the island of Crete where Titus was ministering. One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. Jews from Crete were in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. We see that in Acts 2, 11. Notice that these are not Paul's own words, but rather he is quoting one of the famous local poets who characterizes his own people on the island of Crete. So these false teachers, these Judaizers from Crete, have a reputation that simply makes them not credible. Incidentally, I should add that Judaizers were a significant nuisance in the early church period. We see that the Jerusalem Council of Acts chapter 15 was dedicated to the settling of the issue where converted Gentiles had, up to that point, been expected to come to become proselyted Jews in the process of becoming Christians, circumcision and all. The Jerusalem Council settled this issue, but Judaizers persisted for quite some time afterwards. Paul's letter to the Galatians deals extensively with combating this false doctrine promoted by these Judaizers. So what is Titus to do with regard to their false teaching? Well, there's your answer in verse 13. It says, Wherefore rebuke them sharply. Well, why? He continues, That they may be sound in faith. Then he characterizes their doctrine in verse 14 when he says, Not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. Verses 15 and 16 are extremely important where Paul characterizes the false teachers themselves. Could it be that they are as sincere as Paul himself, just on a different doctrinal path? Well, no. Paul says that they are defiled and unbelieving. He goes on to say that even their mind and conscience is defiled. As a matter of fact, based upon the false teaching they preach, Paul adds in verse 16, They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient, and unto every good work reprobate. There is no question here, Paul was adamant that false teachers ought to be openly opposed by believers. That brings us to chapter 2, verse 1. But speak thou of things which become sound doctrine. That the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience. The aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given much wine, teachers of good things. That they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Young men likewise exhort to be sober minded in all things showing thyself a pattern of good works in doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed having no evil thing to say of you. Exhort servants to be obedient to their own masters and to please them well in all things not answering again not purloining, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. With the warning against the false teachers out of the way, Titus is told to present sound doctrine to his folks, to his congregation. With some detail, he is told to present to the people the qualities of a godly lifestyle in verses 1-10. through paul includes everybody in this message he includes the aged men in verse 2 the aged women in verse 3 the young women in verses 4 and 5 and the young men in verses 6 through 8 and finally servants in verses 9 and 10. so what are we looking for beginning with verse 11 of chapter 2 for the grace of god that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glory superior of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. Well, why is that? Verses 11 through 13 present the blessed hope as the future event for which we as believers are looking forward to. While not explicitly stated here, that's undoubtedly a reference to the rapture. This Greek combination of blessed, the Greek word makarios, and hope, elpis, is unique in the New Testament to this verse and this verse only. We do, however, find numerous New Testament references to the coming of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, with the Greek definite article here, before and only here in this phrase, before the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, Jesus is being described here as God incarnate. Therefore, it seems certain that the rapture of 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18 is being referenced in this passage of Scripture in Titus chapter 2. The saving grace of God of verse 11 is the means whereby all are saved in Jesus Christ. The Greek verb for appeared here is a compound word epi which means on or over and phanerao which means to make manifest. The verb is in the aorist passive indicative form indicating it's an action that has taken place at a particular point in time. That point in time when God's grace made salvation possible speaks of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ on the cross where he paid the sin debt for everyone. Paul is literally saying that salvation became available or manifest to all men when Jesus Christ died for our sins. Then verse 12 recounts the attributes of godly Christian living that were outlined in verses 1 through 10. Believers who lead godly lives are looking forward to the appearing of Jesus Christ at the rapture, verse 13. Since Jesus gave himself for us on the cross, we are redeemed from our sins, we see in verse 14. The indwelling power of the Holy Spirit serves to purify us, as in enhance our personal testimony. The King James Version word peculiar there comes from the Greek word periusius, which means special. Leaders are God's special people, and the indwelling leadership of the Holy Spirit gives them a propensity toward good works. For more information on this leadership by the Holy Spirit, see my notes on Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 26. Then Paul reinforces his comments in verse 15 when he says, these things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. Hey, you gotta say what you gotta say. Then some parting words in Titus chapter 3. Beginning with verse 1, Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work. To speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. That being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. But avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and striving about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. A man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition reject. KNOWING THAT HE THAT IS SUCH IS SUBVERTED AND SINNETH, BEING CONDEMNED OF HIMSELF. WHEN I SHALL SEND ARTEMIS UNTO THEE, OR TYCHICUS, BE DILIGENT TO COME TO ME TO Nicopolis, FOR I HAVE DETERMINED THERE TO WINTER. BRING ZENUS THE LAWYER AND APOLLOS ON THEIR JOURNEY DILIGENTLY, THAT NOTHING BE WANTING UNTO THEM. AND LET OURS ALSO LEARN TO MAINTAIN GOOD WORKS FOR NECESSARY USES, THAT THEY BE NOT UNFRUITFUL. All that are with me salute thee. Greet them that love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. The thoughts of chapter 2 are continued here in chapter 3. As he had done in his letter to Timothy, Paul reminds Titus of the importance of teaching his congregation to be subject to the government authorities. He does that in verse 1. And generally kind to others altogether in verse 2. Paul recalls his own past prior to salvation in verse 3, which he also recounts when he writes his letter to Timothy in First Timothy chapter 1. And he admits there, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Since he actually presided over the execution of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, verse 3 would seem to present Paul's spiritual state before receiving Christ as a savior. Then we have a powerful declaration of salvation by grace in Titus 3.5, where it says, it's not a works, it's by grace. Let's take a close look at verse 5 regarding the process of salvation. First of all, salvation does not come because of works of righteousness. And then, salvation is made possible through an extension of God's mercy. Finally, Paul lists two components here to the salvation proposition. The first one is the washing of regeneration that means the spiritual rebirth just like what john talks to nicodemus about in john chapter 3 verses 1 through 8 and secondly the renewing of the holy ghost or holy spirit and that would be a renovation the renovation that takes place in one's body the new creation as a process of the indwelling of the holy spirit as you can see in verse 5 here it clearly defines the process of salvation as the process of spiritual rebirth and Holy Spirit renovation, which, according to verse 6, has been presented to us by Jesus Christ himself. If you want to see more on that, look at my notes on Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1-10. through 10. You also might find help for the article that I've written. You'll find it on the main page of BibleTrack.org, which is entitled, What the Bible Says About Eternal Life. That brings us to verse 7, which declares the grace of verse 5 is going to make us heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The Greek word for hope in every occurrence in the New Testament is elpis. The Greek definition for elpis is a little different in expression from our English word hope. While we use the word hope to sometimes express a good bit of uncertainty about future events, elpis is a Greek expression meaning confident expectation with no uncertainty with regard to a future event but what about works well that's addressed in verse 8 paul encourages believers to be conscious of their personal testimony in doing so other people are profited as well and by the way stay away from contentious people we see that in verses 9 through 11 He's specifically addressing those who spend too much time on obscure details of Scripture while overlooking the predominant message of the sacrifice for sins of Jesus Christ. Now, regarding the word genealogies in verse 9, uh, also have a note on that in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 4. Note verse 10, which says, A man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition and reject. The word for heretic is heretikos it literally sounds just like the english word for heretic doesn't it it is used in the context of one who causes division over the scripture notice paul's harsh judgment on this heretic in verse 11 the phrase is subverted is the greek verb form of extrafo used in the perfect passive tense here to indicate that he is a heretic because He already has been corrupted by this false doctrine. The heretic sins by his heresy and is condemned by his own actions. None of these statements address the issue of salvation. It is quite possible, even likely, that these so-called heretics were Christians who were led astray by false doctrine, and now they are propagating that same false doctrine. This is the theme regarding harmful doctrine that Paul began back in Titus chapter 1, in verses 10 through 16. I heard a saying once, and here it is. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. So, what do we get out of that? While you may enjoy studying the less than obvious details of the Old and New Testaments, don't allow yourself to come to a place where they become test of your fellowship with other believers. Good men disagree on peripheral issues of Scripture all the time. Paul concludes this chapter with a few housekeeping issues and greetings in verses 12 through 15. That brings us to the book of Philemon. As a matter of introduction, let's just say that Philemon lived in Asia Minor and received this letter from Paul somewhere between 56 and 62 AD. Paul was in prison at the time. Unlike Paul's other letters, this one is more like a piece of personal correspondence to an individual regarding a third party that third party's name was onesimus paul had been ministered to by onesimus who was an escaped slave from philemon's household now paul is attempting to pave the way for onesimus to return to philemon without the consequences that would ordinarily accompany a returning slave you want to see more information regarding slavery in the first century and how that was practiced and why CONSULT MY NOTES ON EPHESIANS CHAPTER 6 VERSES 5 THROUGH 9 NOW BEGINNING WITH VERSE 1 PAUL A PRISONER OF JESUS CHRIST AND TIMOTHY OUR BROTHER AND TO Philemon, OUR DEARLY BELOVED AND FELLOW LABORER AND TO OUR BELOVED AUTHIUM AND Archippus, OUR FELLOW SOLDIER AND TO THE CHURCH IN THY HOUSE GRACE TO YOU AND PEACE FROM GOD OUR FATHER AND THE LORD JESUS CHRIST I thank my God, making mention of thee always in my prayers, hearing of thy love and faith which thou hast toward the Lord Jesus, and toward all saints, that the communication of thy faith may become effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Jesus Christ. For we have great joy and consolation in thy love, because the bowels of the saints are refreshed by thee, brother." Wherefore, though I might be much bold in Christ, to enjoin thee that which is convenient, yet for love's sake I rather beseech thee, being such and one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I beseech thee for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds, which in time past was to thee unprofitable, but now profitable to thee and to me. Whom I have sent again, thou therefore receive him, that is, mine own bowels, whom I would have retained with me, that in thy stead he might have ministered unto me in the bonds of the gospel. But without thy mind would I do nothing, that thy benefit should not be, as it were, of necessity, but willingly. For perhaps he therefore departed for a season, that thou shouldest receive him for ever, Not now as a servant, but above a servant, a brother beloved, especially to me. But how much more unto thee, both in the flesh and in the Lord? If thou count me therefore a partner, receive him as myself. If he hath wronged thee, or oweth thee aught, put that on mine account. I, Paul, have written it with mine own hand. I will repay it, albeit I do not say to thee how thou owest unto me, even thine own self besides yea brother let me have joy of thee in the Lord refresh my bowels in the Lord having confidence in thy obedience I wrote unto thee knowing that thou wilt also do more than I say but withal prepare me also a lodging for I trust that through your prayers I shall be given unto you there salute thee, Epaphras my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus marcus aristarchus demas lucas my fellow laborers the grace of our lord jesus christ be with your spirit amen philemon was the guy in whose house the church met there in his hometown we're not told the name of the city his slave onesimus got loose and came to paul where he was saved and discipled now paul is sending onesimus back to philemon with this letter containing a very strong recommendation that Onesimus be forgiven and restored. This is Paul's letter of recommendation to Philemon for a gracious treatment of Onesimus upon his arrival. One can't help but notice how Paul uses extreme persuasive measures in this letter on behalf of Onesimus. He begins with heavy compliments of Philemon's stand for the Lord in verses 4-7. through He indicates in verse 10 that Onesimus had received Christ as Savior while he was with Paul. He notes in verse 11 that while Onesimus may not have been a very good slave before, now he is ministering to Paul effectively on behalf of Philemon. In verse 12, he's sending him home. He calls upon Philemon to reinstate Onesimus as a slave with special standing. He mentions this in verses 15 and 16. And extends it to even as a brother in Christ. He calls upon Philemon to charge to Paul whatever Onesimus may have cost him as a result of his flight from the household of Philemon in verses 17 and 18. Although in verse 19 Paul seems to be indicating that it would be kind to of tacky on Philemon's part to collect anything given all that Paul had already done for Philemon in the past. Finally, Paul indicates his desire to visit back when he is released from prison. In other words, he says in verse 22, fix up my room. Many cite this letter of recommendation as the basis for the exchange of church letters, which is commonly practiced today when one leaves one church to go join another church.